welcome back to It's an Inside Job podcast. I'm your host, Jason Lim. Now, this podcast is dedicated to helping you to help yourself and others to become more mentally and emotionally resilient so you can be better at bouncing back from life's inevitable setbacks. Now, on It's an Inside Job, we decode the science and stories of resilience into practical advice, skills, and strategies that you can use to impact your life and those around you. Now, with that said, let's slip into the stream. Well, welcome back to a brand new week and a new episode. I'm glad you could join me. This week, we are going to kick off a brand new series where I will be having one-to-one interviews with Ukrainians to understand their situation, to understand what they are going through. Because resilience, from their perspective, it's an ongoing and ever-evolving situation. An unmitigated crisis and an uninvited invasion that has turned their world upside down. But in that mix-up and that in that chaos, they have found a way to move forward and to to surmount and find a mindset as a collective, as a nation, as individuals, as teams and families to move through it. It's not easy, far from it. And I can't really speak to any of that. And that is why I wanted to bring different Ukrainians on to speak from this. To kick off the series, I am very pleased to be joined by Vladimir Detorov. Vladimir, in his civilian life, is the co-founder and CEO of Newsfront Communication Agency, one of Ukraine's top consultancies with 30-plus employees and a client pool, including global industry leaders like BMW, Takeda, Lenovo, and Danone. But that role was almost a lifetime ago. Now, currently, he serves in the Ukrainian military. Because of his expertise in communications, he is now managing communications for the Territorial Defense Forces of Kiev. And before we roll into the interview, I just wanted to share the fact that, you know, I was sitting in my studio in Oslo, Norway, safe and sound, while Vladimir, he was deep in a bunker with army fatigues, and with the air raid sirens going off as Russian rockets were incoming. And so I wish I could include the video of this, but it's just the audio version. But to talk to a man face-to-face from where he was sitting, it moved me. And so I hope this conversation serves as a platform for Ukrainians to speak their message, to reach out to the outside world. Well, without further ado... I am very privileged and honored to introduce Vladimir Detorov. So let's slip into the stream. I wish we were speaking under better circumstances, but it is what it is at the moment. And I'd like to maybe begin to understand for our listeners who you are and what you are currently doing. Hello, Jason, and thanks for having me. I'm in Ukraine right now. Uh, in fact, uh, recording this from a uh, bomb shelter we, because we've got uh, air raid sirens uh, right now mm. and using my mobile internet because uh, our uh, electricity is off for a certain period um, for the next couple hours just as a way to compensate for the damage that has been done by Russian rockets to the um, energy grid system. Uh, And right now I'm speaking as a soldier of Territorial Defense Forces, which is one of the branches of the armed forces of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I joined since, uh, well, uh, on the day of the full-scale invasion, on February 24th uh, of 2022. And uh, before that, I spent 20 years in communications. Uh, Last 12 years, uh, I was running uh, my own uh, communications agency that I co-founded with a partner. And she's doing the business side right now while I'm in the army. I spent some time uh, on the front lines and then got pulled out uh, of the battle into the command center. And uh, here I'm back to my 
to what I do best, uh, mm-hmm. practically managing communications projects for the Territorial Defense Forces as part of the public affairs and uh, strategic communications team. I'm a father of two kids uh, and I have a beautiful wife and they're in Vilnius right now. And uh, they have been there for the last nine months. I think we only saw each other for several weeks uh, when they came over and then went back to safety. Uh, And other than that, uh, I love reading and traveling and all types of sports. I'm a purple belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I ran multiple marathons, ultra marathons. I did an Ironman. So I'm a sports uh, enthusiast enthusiast yeah yeah well thanks for that as we talked in the pre-interview this podcast focuses on building mental and emotional resilience at an individual level at a team level at a national level and i think volodymyr you touch base on each of those and so what i'd like to do through this or this conversation is kind of touch base on that What I'd like to do is talk to you as an individual, as a soldier, because I think it's so relevant, because this is part of a series, as as I've introduced to you, where I want to talk to Ukrainians, because the resilience you face as individuals, as families, as communities, as a nation is ongoing, and it's a situation that's constantly changing. And so this pod, this episode will be fast forward and fast tracked, and I want to get it released in early December, obviously. I was wondering, perhaps, could you tell us a little about, you said you spend 30 days on the front lines. What was that like? Was that in Kharkiv or? Yeah, that was uh, in uh, the Kharkiv region, which is the western, uh, the eastern part of mm-hmm. uh, Ukraine. Most of that time I spent uh, in the trenches uh, next to a small village that my unit was holding and protecting. Uh, that was in the pre-HIMARS era, which means that uh, we were mostly taking mortar fire, artillery fire, some tank and uh, helicopter fire, uh, rarely responding to that. But just uh, our task was to make sure that no enemy gets past our lines uh, and is able to flank our main forces. And um, that was definitely an interesting and I think an insightful period for me because as a soldier, especially as a private um, soldier, you don't get much freedom in deciding what to do. And uh, most of the territorial defense forces is uh, comprised of ex-civilians who have little or no previous military background. And uh, over 100,000 Ukrainians joined Territorial Defense Forces on uh, the first week. So next to me, I had very few professional career military people, mostly ex-civilians like me. And on the first day of the arrival, we were getting shot at by uh, high-caliber mortars, and uh, artillery rounds. And that's a situation where basically you spend a lot of time under stress uh, because whenever you're on duty or off duty, you are still getting shelled at. Mm. Um, you don't really get, uh, get much rest. Uh, you don't sleep enough. Mm. You cannot... Uh, well, it seems like you cannot uh, impact much of what is happening or what can change uh, uh, your life. Um, and so it's important, it was important for me to find routines and small details in my daily activities that would keep me in check. That's everything from basic hygiene procedures, uh, like making sure that I shave every day, that I keep my kit and clothing in order, that whatever I come back from my 12-hour shift before I go to sleep or eat, uh, I clean my weapons and uh, get ready for the next shift. So just uh, this uh, Mm. habit 
uh, having things in order has helped me and some of my uh, teammates to um, make sure that there is a small area of life that we can control and definitely finding those areas where you still have control over your actions or your surrounding or your environment, I think is very important in uh, making sure that you keep your sanity under constant stress. And Vladimir, you know, I've, I've talked to a number of people of your caliber. I mean, about that and it's it's about creating some sense of certainty some sense of control some sense of habit or routine as you said to create sanity to 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 preserve your sanity i was just wondering you are similar to myself such as you've been in business you're an entrepreneur you've you've led people but all of a sudden you've got thrusted into this role that perhaps you never even saw on your mental radar and all of a sudden, you're in the trenches, you know, ducking from shell fire from the Russians. In that, in those months, in that month, what did you learn about yourself? You said you had a lot of insights. What did you learn about yourself under such strain and under such unprecedented stress? Well, first, I learned that all of my previous experience in uh, learning things about myself through therapy, through all types of uh, writing practices uh, and retreats and yoga sessions. Uh, mm -hmm. They helped me a lot. Um, that being able to sit down and think about what you're doing actually helps find uh, or keep that uh, sanity. I also think that um, all, of the, all of the sports trainings and experiences and participating in competition helped a lot just because I knew what it was like to be under stress and to have those, uh, you know, like pre-competition jitters and how to deal with them. Because uh, the body reacts in the same way to an upcoming stress, be it a start of a marathon or a jiu-jitsu match mm. or a possible attack by the enemy. So you learn about yourself and how to control yourself. So, and in my sports uh, experience, I learned that having routines and checklists um, and meditation and uh, running in my head through possible scenarios beforehand, they actually uh, enable you to make, to be more in control of yourself on the race day. And it was actually the same thing that happened on the battlefront a couple of times when we were expecting an attack or when a neighboring unit was attacked and we were lying there uh, waiting for an enemy advance. Uh, I would just go through the motions uh, of the things that uh, my commander or my teammates trained me how to load your weapon how to set up your kit um, and then i would be lying there and just playing through different scenarios so if the enemy comes out of there then i'm going to do this and that and that and that like making things very visible in my head um, and that's what i did for many years, for instance, in sports or when rehearsing for a business meeting. So um, I learned that uh, no matter how high the stress is, training matters a lot. 
I also learned that uh, it is very important to see the bigger picture and the larger purpose. And uh, fortunately, we had good commanders, like my section commander and platoon commander, who were able to explain us what is happening right now, what are our neighboring units, what's the action plan if we get attacked. So there was this constant situational awareness from your commanders to let you know, to create a sense of certainty what your what the other units were doing, where they were placed, what was going on, to the best of their knowledge, to keep you updated. Is that what I understand? Exactly. And uh, this situational awareness is paramount. I saw units where um, soldiers were kept in the dark mm. for different reasons. Mm. And I saw how that impacts their readiness. I also saw how important it is when, uh, like, you see the larger purpose. Like, why am I fighting here? Like, as a territorial defense unit, which I think is similar to the territorial army um, or national guard that many countries have. Mm. Uh, normally, you're supposed to fight or to protect your area. Yes. So it would it would feel strange uh, at first to protect Kiev in Kharkiv, right? Like many hundred miles away from your city. Mm. When you go and think about what Russia does with artillery fire to any city that they approach, you realize that maybe indeed it's a good idea to protect your city far away from your city. So like even things like that, like how you um, explain to yourself what you can do. And I think that has helped me a lot. I have had many questions uh, uh, from abroad ask me, well, you seem quite happy in what you're doing right now. And I said, well, there is not much that I can do to change what I do, because as a soldier, I'm mobilized and I'm here until the victory. So uh, I think any army works like that. You can just walk out of it. <laughs> you cannot resign. Right? No, no. Uh, I <laughs> presume you just can't walk out. It's not like uh, quitting a job. That's far from it. The sense of having a bigger picture and a greater purpose allowed you to understand why you were there. It gave you a reasoning. It gave you sort of foundation to understand. You were saying as an athlete, as a doing jujitsu, doing ultra marathons and such, that kind of training, that kind of stress and that kind of pressure on yourself allowed you to, to some level, acclimatize to what you're facing now. One of the things I really liked you were talking about was the visualization. You know, through your training, you, were, you weren't speculating how things were going to play out. You were strategizing. So if the Russians did this, we would do this. If, if this happens, then we do this. And so through that visualization process, that allows you to create some sense of certainty that almost that the mind is played through a reality in its head, scenario after scenario after scenario. So when it actually does happen, that's when the training kicks in. And that's when you kind of fall back to routine. Is it what I understand? That gives a level of cognitive or mental or emotional stability. Is that what I understand you're explaining? Absolutely. So even if you just experiment and sit down and close your eyes and imagine going into a fight, your heart rate is going to peak like almost immediately. Just because it's really hard for your mind to see uh, where it's your imagination or where it's real. So after you experience like that or something like that, or after you visualize a potentially traumatic setting or experience when it actually happens to your mind you already have lived through that it's not something new so and this visualization methods have been uh, in the sports for many decades it's something that has been uh, experimented on multiple times and recorded in multiple uh, researches uh, so that's definitely something that works very well so basically when i would be preparing for uh, for my Ironman the night before. I would sit down, close my eyes, and then specifically imagine every motion that I would do next morning after I wake up, from 
putting my kit together, to having breakfast, to going to the start line, to doing the swim part, running out of the swim, into the, into the transition, riding off with a bike, having a malfunction, sorting that malfunction out, changing a flat tire, so everything like that. So when it actually would happen, for me, that would not be a surprise. That would not be the first time that I would experience that. I would just go through the motions uh, without that big emotional spike. And then it sounds like through that visualization, through your sports, through through what you're going through now, that allowed you to have a sense of mental resilience to kind of have already, your, your brain's a prediction machine, but it's already predicted. It's already run through the scenario. To some extent, it has a, a quite a good confidence as, as to how you will react to that. I would like to rewind back to, to the amount you'd like to share. You know, you are obviously not a professional soldier, but you've become a professional soldier through these last nine, 10 months of what you do. But when you joined in February 24th uh, of this year, 2022, what was it like? Again, to the amount you'd like to share with us, Vladimir, the first time you experienced ducking to, due to shelling from the Russians. I mean, what was that like? What was going through your head, if I might try, try to sort of, you know, find the nuts and bolts of what you were going through? I thought about joining territorial defense uh, forces for a while already. Mm. I went into a couple of trainings with our guys, and um, but I didn't sign up officially. However, I was very close. So on the day of the invasion, mm. I already was in a Facebook group with my future squad, and I saw that they were getting together so I just walked out uh, to them and then came back home later that night with a contract signed and with an AK. So it's, uh, I think that was uh, and still is uh, quite an emotional decision, not something very rational. My thinking was that if everybody leaves uh, the city, then who is going to be there to protect it? Obviously, I was wrong because a lot of people left and protected it. Like I said, only our branch, quite new branch of the army, enrolled over 120,000 volunteers mm. over the first week. So there was there were huge lines of people for the first week, just willing to sign up and go and fight for the, for the army. But for me, it was still, uh, so I never went in expecting to be in battle with tanks and helicopters. It was a gradual transition mm -hmm. as Russia was upping its efforts. So first we were conducting regular routes uh, and inspections around Kyiv. Then we moved further from Kyiv, then we ended up in Kharkiv on the front lines. And first there was only mortar shells, then it increased. Um, so it was quite a gradual, if you may say so. Uh, sure. Progression into progress. it. Mm. Progression, right. And still, um, I mean, obviously we were, as non-professional soldiers, we're not really trained to assault cities or run tanks, etc. We were foot soldiers whose job was basically to make sure that no enemy gets past a certain line. Mm -hmm. And I have huge respect for professional soldiers who actually do the hard stuff, the technical stuff, the IT stuff, the artillery, the air and the mechanized uh, brigades who do the assaults and break the enemy lines um, i think that's definitely harder and more has more risk than uh, sitting into the in the trenches in part one vladimir talked about when he moved from civilian life to the military life 
You know, his sense of influence over the situations monumentally decreased. And through finding routines and focusing on small details in his daily activities, while it kept him in check, and was having control over the small areas in his life that kept him in control over a situation where he didn't have much influence. And Vladimir also had the advantage of the disciplined mindset of an athlete, where he runs ultras, where he, he has a purple belt in jiu-jitsu. And all that training and the visualization helped him to run scenarios, not about speculation, but about strategy. If this happens, then I do this. If X, then Y. And so in part two, we continue that narrative. We continue that discussion about how to find resilience in these kind of crazy situations. And as he serves in the military, he's learning lessons when he eventually goes back to his civilian life. And that is lessons of leadership, such as communication, 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 understanding situation awareness, lots of delegations, the ability to make decisions and make them fast so you don't create bottlenecks. Another important lesson he's learned along this road is after action reviews. And that is to have an honest recollection of what each of the team members did. How did the efforts work out? And what are the lessons that are learned that can be applied to future situations? Well, I'll let Vladimir speak more to this. I hope you enjoy part two. I never joined the army uh, with a wish to kill anyone. In fact, as I was joining, I hoped that I would never have to use the weapons. And I hope that I'm going to hand in most of my ammo as I received it. However, I believe that I believe that you have to be able to be hard uh, and to be aggressive to protect your family or whoever is close to you. And from what I see, most of Ukrainians have joined with the same intention, with a willing not to kill someone, but rather to protect. Sometimes that means um, killing. I'm fortunate uh, that I have not had that experience, and um, I hope that I'm not going to have it. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. During the last 10 months, I was wondering if we could just expand the conversation. I was wondering as to if there was any sort of acts of of uh, resilience or tenacity that you've witnessed, whether they were civilians, where they were your, your fellow soldiers. I mean, how, how has resilience showed up in other Ukrainians that you've witnessed? I think the fact that uh, we're still there and fighting is all about resilience. Most uh, Western analysts gave us three to five days and we're nine, ten months uh, into the battle and obviously winning the military part, right? So we have able, we have been able to push uh, Russian forces from out from Kiev, from Chernihiv, to free all the northern part, uh, to mount very effective uh, counteroffensive actions in Kherson, in Kharkiv, which are I'm sure are going to become textbook examples of uh, military action. And that has been only possible just because Ukrainians have been incredibly resilient on all levels. Um, from the amount of help the military is getting from volunteers and from civilians to how civilians are able to unite to make sure that... Uh, they can help each other to the amount of creativity that uh, Ukraine has shown in everything. I mean, from public diplomacy, international outreach campaigns, to using the weapons, drones, and things like that. So for me, resilience is shown in the way how you still move on even when that doesn't seem reasonable or possible. Thank you for that. 
I was wondering if we could shift and maybe speak to a little more about your position and responsibilities now and what you do. And perhaps if you could maybe connect parallels, because I would also like to sort of delve into your psychology as a leader, as an entrepreneur, as a founding partner of, of your communications company. Could we speak to that? What are some of the parallels you see between what you do now and what you did previous to the conflict, the invasion? In fact, what I'm doing now is exactly what I was doing previously, running and designing and uh, uh, executing communication strategies. Mm. Previously, it was for corporate clients, big brands. Now it is uh, for the state Mm. and for my army unit. I have a smaller team right now, but uh, an unbelievably talented team because being a very new branch of the army we have lots of civilian talent from different careers uh, from different professions and so uh, we were able to put together a team which consists of extremely professional people like one of the most talented creative directors of a big advertising agency is doing creative for us Uh, an incredible producer whose films are winning international awards is doing documentaries for us so it's um, that definitely helps a lot I don't think that in my civilian job I would be able uh, I would have the funds to pay for this talent that I'm having right now But I'm happy that my business, my communications agency is still Mm -hmm. up and running, Mm -hmm. primarily because I have a fantastic partner who stepped in Mm -hmm. and uh, basically took on most of the work that has, uh, that's, uh, that needs to be done. As the agency, as my business, I think that our main Achievement is that we have been able to go through a number of crises from different internal organizational crises to COVID, uh, which now seems like a joke, but was quite a big thing <laughs> just a year ago. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's crazy how the world can change on a, on a dime. You know, looking at what you've experienced as a soldier in your pre in your current responsibilities, what have you learned so far in the last ten months that you will incorporate into your leadership when you go back to a civilian role? I've got a number of lessons, in fact, specifically about leadership, uh, because again, I am happy to witness some incredible military leadership. Uh, and I see the dedication that uh, our officers have for their job and their tenacity. And so uh, looking at some of the best uh, chief of staffs uh, here in the military, I see a number of things that they do very well, which I'm going to definitely take back into my civilian life. One is uh, lots of delegation and quick decision-making in uh, what to do and what specific deadlines to assign. I see how that ability to make quick decisions, not to become a bottleneck in the decision-making process, and then assigning a task to a person and following up on it moves the process along much further. I also think that the after-action reviews that are happening in the military is definitely not something that is happening everywhere in business, where basically you sit down and make uh, honest recollection of what each of your team members did, what were your initial plans, how it worked out, and what are the lessons learned for the future. I think that's a, that's definitely a big learning for me because uh, back in my business, uh, especially if a project project well, you don't usually do an after-action review. Well, here, that's like a rule. The amount of feedback that is given to 
a project, not to a person. I think it's is very uh, specific, at least for for our branch. Basically, I cannot. First, I would be surprised. So I bring a document, a video, uh, a deliverable, yes. mm-hmm. and then I get a ton of comments. To me, that means that uh, the deliverable is not up to the standard. But then, in the end, I see. That was a great job. Thank you. Hmm. So first I was confused. And then I realized that uh, that's just a military way of acknowledging good work, but still uh, keeping the standard higher every time. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it, it does. It does. I mean, they're they're being forthright. They're talking about the problem. You're not taking it personal, but they're they're just, as you said, they're they're keeping the sense of the quality, the the caliber of the work. But that can only come through being frank by addressing the elephants, by addressing whatever needs to be fixed. Because if they don't tell you, how will you know what to fix? And they have a certain standard that needs to be had, and you have to be the professional showing up, take that feedback. And once you've done it, they turn around and give you feedback and a pat on the back or congratulations for a job well done for the quality. Is that what I understand? Exactly, exactly. So just to rewind here for our listeners, for myself. So you've learned a number of important things from your position, but also how the military runs from things. First one way back in the conversation was situational awareness to constantly communicate what's going on, to constantly have that feedback going up, up the line, down the line. And I guess lateral across the peer groups, you said it's the, the ability to delegate. And as I understand it, delegating is also sometimes spreading the authority down, distributing the power so people can make certain decisions at this level so things can be acted on. It's also making quick decisions and it's regardless if it's perfect or not perfect, it's just not to create a bottleneck. If you make a bad decision, fine, you can rewind and correct it, but at least there's some sort of movement as I understand it. As you said, there's also, and one thing I really like what you said was the after action reports. It's actually something that I, I know you've worked as a coach and aspiring partner yourself. And so in our conversation before this, this is something I encourage in a lot of organizations because they will do a project and they will have to, they'll have two teams working on it, two different departments. There's sometimes there'll be emotions or conflict based on it because it's, it's a hot priority right now and everyone gets emotionally engaged. They finish it, it gets boxed and placed on a shelf and then they move on to the next. But there is not as you've articulated, an after-action report where they go down and take apart. What did you do? What was your responsibility? What were you accountable? What were the lessons learned? And I think that was a very great insight you made when you articulated the idea that maybe we should take apart the DNA of what we've done so we can improve or also to see what we've done well. Is that what I understand is one of the learning lessons you've that, that really stood out to you. Yeah, absolutely. So just making sure that you analyze both the bad and the good projects. Mm-hmm. So you can also encourage the good behavior behavior, and then prevent uh, repetition of bad behavior. Obviously, you're working with a very high caliber team right now, Volodymyr. How does, how does a leader deal with someone who is overly sensitive from your perspective? You know, whether that is in the trenches or whether it's in the planning room to, as you're creating a communications campaign, how does one deal with an oversensitive person? I think that empathy is extremely important. Um, and just being able to recognize the moments where you can choose different strategies. So at one point, you spend some time talking about their emotions and feelings. Mm. And next time you joke about it. And then some other time you are very strict. So for instance, last night I sent some edits to one of my team members mm. who is quite sensitive. And he texted me in response that like how long message about how that is impossible But since that's not our first conversation of this uh, type, and we have a good report, 
I texted him, I texted him back, blah, blah, blah. And he smiled in response. Okay. <laughs> so basically he recognized that I understood him, but that still needs to be done. Mm -hmm. So sometimes people speak not to change some, something, sometimes they need to be heard, sometimes they need mm -hmm. to be encouraged, sometimes they need to be directed. I don't think there is any single uh, scenario or receipt or a way of addressing a person because uh, a person is a moving object in a number of moving objects in a larger scale of moving objects. Uh, a collision is going to happen, right? <laughs> exactly. So it's important just to make sure that you develop your empathy and understanding and have a range of tools how you address a situation or a number of tools which, which, with which you come into a relationship with a subordinate or a team member or a higher up. I really like the take you took on that. You know, you need to take a different tack depending upon the situation, upon the person, because everything is situational and a person may not be reacting the same way as he did yesterday as he is today. Part three of the conversation, Vladimir and I continue the narrative and the exploration of how to create resilient teams. And he articulates the point that there can never be enough communication. He speaks to two things that I'd like to highlight here. And the first one is what he calls commander's intent. It's what your commander wants you to do and where he needs your help and your efforts. You know, that person, that direct report, he or she needs to know their intent, why and what is the larger purpose of what they have to do. And the second point was mission command, and this really resonated with me. It really rang true. It's where there's centralized command, but decentralized control, where I tell you why and what I need you to do, but I don't tell you how to do it. Where more power is given to decisions and execution on the battlefield, but in terms of strategy, well, that's determined on top. Well, let's dive into this dream and listen to the last chapter of my conversation with Vladimir. During your time as a soldier, serving time in the trenches, now with communication, but also as a leader, taking all the scope of who you are, also the, the, the athletes in jiu-jitsu and doing the ultras and such, what are the important elements to keep, from your perspective, from all these different experiences, what are the important elements to keep uh, a team close, tight, well-knitted, and have cohesion? How do you, how do, you do that under stress pressure whether it's deadlines or whether it's shelling it takes a lot of communication mm -hmm. to keep your team together like there is no such thing as enough or communicating enough i think you need to remind people to talk to them to understand them for instance during the covid when everything was closed down and our team suddenly had to stay at home, every day I would sit down, I would put on my uh, dress shirt and record a short, brief video of the day addressing my team on what's happening right now. And that went on for, I think, 40 days until the situation started sort of becoming more predictable. So just making sure that we reach out and they uh, know something that the military call commander's intent. That's a very interesting term or a notion that I'm definitely going to take into my civilian life. Did you say commander's intent? Yes. Yeah. Could, could yeah, you elaborate on that? Term. So uh, in the NATO military, there is such thing as commander's intent. That is what your commander wants to do and where he needs your, your help or your efforts. So basically, in any order that is given to a soldier, 
he or she needs to be aware of the commander's intent of their higher-up and their higher-up. So, for instance, I'm given a task of um, taking control of this hill. That needs to be done because my higher-up, because my commander, intends to control six kilometers of the road. And being on top of that hill gives me control over that road. And his commander wants him to control that road because he's going to use that road to deliver ammo to the front lines. So that uh, means that I'm not only said, go up this hill and dig a trench there, but I understand why I'm doing that and what is the larger purpose. So one thing that uh, a notion or a concept that the Western military has that the Russia doesn't have is mission command, which means that you have centralized uh, command and decentralized control. I told you, I tell you why I want you to do this. I tell you, I tell you what I want you to do. Uh, I don't tell you how to do this, right? Yes. So, so that more, more power is given to commanders on the battlefield. Um, more power in terms of execution, but in terms of the strategy, that still is decided on top. Mm-hmm. So basically, making sure that uh, I know my commander's intent gives me makes me more suitable to executing any mission. Mm-hmm. If I talk, well, if I move back into a business and I tell yeah. um, my employee go prepare this report. It would be good for them to know how I'm going to apply it, whether I'm going to make it a part of a larger work or I'm going to present it uh, or I'm going to send it elsewhere, basically what I'm going to do with it. And that will impact the format, the scope, the time frame of the report that they're going to prepare. You have central command, but you have decentralized uh, authority or control. And so this is something that can be applied because if you as a leader tell your subordinate, tell your direct report that I need this done because of this. So you give them a reason and a rhyme and reason why it needs to be done, the importance, or even if it's not so important, then that will help them to dedicate the time they need to prioritize to something. If it only needs to be 60% quality, then, you know, this is just a small thing or, but by clarifying that the commander's intent that allows me as the direct report to choose how I want to do it, but you create very well-designed constraints in which I can work. So I know the rules of the game and I can produce whatever you need. And I understand the the results that my efforts will produce. Is that what I understand you're, you're communicating? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. But thank you for that. That's very important. I mean, when it comes down to that sort of uh, central command and decentralized control, this you said something, this is something the Russians don't have. Do you think this would explain some of what's going on that the Russians or the, I don't want to talk about Russians in general, but the Russian military, it's been very slow to respond sort of on the field where Ukrainians seem to be constantly adapting to keep it seems like from my perspective, they're constantly pivoting and adapting and evolving to the situation. It's a much more resilient and robust uh, military machine than what the Russians are. Is, do you, maybe I'm making, maybe I'm jumping at making too much of a stretch of comparison, but is this something you see as a, someone there on the front, front lines? Well, you're absolutely right. And uh, that has been, uh reported by multiple military analysts uh, that indeed uh, they have centralized command and centralized control. Mm. That's why basically their generals need to be so close to the front lines because they make all the smaller decisions themselves. That explains the number of Russian generals killed, which is extraordinary for a military. I mean, I think... It's close to eight or ten so far. I mean, that's a lot. Having yes, some I agree. high-ranking officers mm-hmm. killed, uh, but even 
pre-High Mars era. Another thing that Russia has is uh, they make you suffer for your failures. So basically, you don't get to learn from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you report a failure, your failure, you are discharged. That means that you are very reluctant to report on your failures, and those failures remain hidden until a breaking point. And I, we've seen that multiple times uh, with the Russian military. So basically, uh, they come up with this good-looking picture and report uh, until it's already too late. So if you look at them, you actually can see a good case of how an organization should not behave or it will suffer you know, what not to do. It's a lesson book on what not to do, a playbook for that. You know, so, sometimes I'm wondering if, if this if this kind of mentality of how leading organizations of the Russian military, if it actually goes all the way to the top, to the Kremlin, the head guy on top is not t- told everything because of the, this fear of failure or retribution or consequences of saying something. That, that, that would speak volumes to what you're speaking to. Yeah, that's uh, that's exactly what's happening. Mm. I mean, his uh, one of his biggest allies in Ukraine, and now we know that uh, he had been given billions of dollars mm. to spend on Russia propaganda, stealing them instead, and then making up reports, and then decisions about Ukraine's uh, internal attitudes were made based on those reports. So in a way, Ukraine benefited from Russia's corruption. Talking about the Ukrainians, again, I'm very respectful of your time, Volodymyr. Um, If we could move the conversation maybe from now to the national level, I was wondering, what do you think, you know, those outside of Ukraine, such as myself, such as most of my listeners, what, what should they know about the situation right now as it currently stands? I think many people think that this is Putin's war. Mm. Um, And I would uh, argue that it's not on two levels. First, they still have a lot of support internally. I mean, right now, almost a million of Russians have been participating in this war. Mm. Um, And they all have families, relatives, etc., so definitely, it's not a one-man's war. Second, it's not even so much about Putin. It's more about Russia and its imperial ambition, ambitions. If you go back, what we see now has been happening for previous three, four hundred years. Every time Ukraine was able to get a little bit of independence... Russia would come crashing down. And we have seen that multiple times. Uh, Just in terms of pure economy and geography, Russia wants to have access to the Black Sea. Russia wants to have access to trade routes. Russia wants to control international grain trade. Uh, And it so happened that Ukraine is on the way. So no matter what ruler comes up, every time same thing happens. Another thing um, that I think should be known to yes. the West yes. is that Ukraine and Russia, although are very close geographically, mm. our languages sound similar. Culturally, they are very, very, very different nations. Ukraine has a habit to freedom. We have a long history of riots against uh, tyrants. Mm. Russia, on the other hand, has uh, a habit to tyranny. So it's uh, really two very different and very distinct cultures. Unfortunately, over the last decades, most of the international narrative has been shaped by Russia. Mm. 
And so people outside of Ukraine often think of this as a smaller conflict between two neighbor nations, brother nations. And it's not. It's in fact a bigger a cultural, a geopolitical mm-hmm. uh, conflict where you have two very, very different cultures. So, and I, I think it's very important that you've articulated that so people can understand that there is a difference. One last question for you. What can the outside lo- world in general learn about resilience from the Ukrainians as it stands in the here and now? I think a lot of Ukrainians' resilience come from internal dignity. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second pillar is um, horizontal connections. Ukrainian community or Ukrainian society has very many different layers and they're very intertwined. And then whenever a crisis happens, those horizontal relations or connections, in fact, help a lot. People are able to form new alliances, uh, networks, uh, just depending on the needs that they have. So I think uh, one aspect is uh, understanding your inner dignity and the bigger purpose. And the second is working on your empathy, because I think that's uh, the main, the integral part of being able to establish strong horizontal relations and connections. Well, thank you very much for that. Is there any last advice, any last thoughts you would like to leave myself and my listeners? I think the advice would be to keep helping Ukraine just because by helping Ukraine, you're helping the world to come up with a new security system, because obviously the old one, the existing one, is not working anymore. By helping Ukraine, you are showing to other dictators in the world that the world is a big place that can... uh, push back on any dictator, and we've got a number of those globally. So allowing Russia to continue sends a very, very, very dangerous message to some of the other um, tyrannies, current and future. Well, thank you, Volodymyr, for your time. I really appreciate it. I hope you stay safe and uh, I wish the best for yourself, for your team, for your family, for your your city and for the Ukraine uh, in general. I wish I could say or do more, but, you know, this podcast is one way for for me to feel, at least personally, that I can do something to communicate that message of from from someone who's living the fight at the moment. Thank you, Jason. And I'll be looking forward to your next episode. Thanks a lot, Volodymyr. I appreciate your time. Keep safe, eh? Well, folks, that was Volodymyr Detorov, a man who's played many roles as an athlete in jiu-jitsu and running ultras, to being the co-founder and CEO of Newsfront Communications Agency, and as his current role, managing communications for the Territorial Defense Forces Kiev. Vladimir, it was an honor and a privilege to speak to you, and I really appreciate it. I hope you and yours keep safe and that Ukraine comes out on top of this conflagration. My best to you, my friends, and I hope we get to meet face-to-face at some point in the near future. Well, folks, that was a brilliant conversation that I had with Vladimir. It was deep. It was hard-hitting. I learned a lot. and It was kind of surreal, as I said at the top of this show connecting with a guy and he's sitting in a bunker as air raid sirens are going off and he's in fatigues and he's as cool as a cucumber sitting there and it was nice to talk to this guy to understand and how he articulated a well-balanced insightful lessons that he's learned along the way 
Well, next week, I am going to be joined by another Ukrainian, and I'm looking forward to speaking to her also. But folks, you can reach uh, Volodymyr through his contacts in the show notes, and you can check out his Newsfront Communication Agency also with the link there. But thank you, folks. Thank you for joining me for this conversation and the kickoff of a new series where I talk to Ukrainians about their ongoing situations and how they adapt and move towards resilience through this unbelievable time for them. Until next week, keep well, keep strong, and we'll speak soon.